The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you and good morning. Um, I'm always happy to come back here. Uh, Even though I don't live nearby, I think of IMC as my home temple. And uh, I always have a kind of feeling of homecoming uh, being here. Um, Those of you who know me um, know that my interest uh, is in the early Buddhist texts. But today I'm going to do something different. I'm going to stick my neck out and um, talk about something that's kind of risky for Dharma teachers. I want to talk about um, the heartbreak that I feel day in and day out and that probably many of you also feel in response to current events. Um, last night I, I, uh, I listened to a, a song on YouTube by um, Florence Reese. She was um, an activist, born in 1900, uh, died in 1986, and she was the wife of a coal miner in West Virginia, and the coal miners had no protection uh, at that time at all, and her husband was dying of black lung. And she wrote an incredible song, uh, the refrain of which was, which side are you on? And then Pete Seeger uh, sang it again and uh, sort of memorialized it. So as, as Buddhists were cautioned about not taking sides, you know, and I certainly uh, do not assume that everyone in this room is of the same political persuasion that I am. So I'm not going to talk about uh, individual politicians, and I'm not going to talk about political parties. But I do think that there is room for knowing which side we're on. Um, One of the things that we do in our our practice is um, we often come to forks in the road, and it's our job to discern what is the skillful response, what is the unskillful response. So the side we want to be on is the skillful side. What's the wholesome response? What's the unwholesome response? We want to, we want to be on the wholesome side. So um, as uh, you well know, it's dangerous to have fixed views. We don't want to get you know, a tunnel vision of what we think is right and wrong. But we do uh, have, I believe, an ethical obligation to um, try to come down on the side of uh, what is not hatred, what is not greed, and what is not delusion. So that's, that's the optic um, f- uh, from which I'm going to try to address this, this topic. Um, so, troubled times. Just last Friday, another school shooting. Last week, uh, we brilliantly moved our embassy uh, in Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, 
and there was huge violence that erupted from the protests. Um, we alienated every single one of our allies, uh, except Israel, in doing this, because they, everyone knows that this is just pouring fire, uh, pouring gasoline on the fire of the, um, the stress in the Middle East. Um, and 60 people were killed by the Israelis. And over 2,700 were wounded, including children. And then we've got gender violence, violence against women, police violence against blacks. It's, it's a daily litany of of heartbreak, for me anyway, and maybe for some of you as well. One of the um, worst um, things, I think, is uh, the delusion that we now find ourselves in of our country believing that we don't have to do anything about climate change. Um, We may be past the point of non-return, but certainly uh, if we keep going the way we have been going for the last year and a half, we're going to get to that point of non-return. And, you know, what are we leaving for our fu- the future generations? So, um, following the 2016 election, um, Roshi Joan Halifax said, it's clear we have our work cut out for us. It's the work of love and wisdom in the face of the terrible suffering of war, environmental issues, racism, gender violence, and economic justice. So the question I want to explore with you today is, in the face of all that's happening in these troubled times, how do we respond with the wisdom, the compassion, and the equanimity that we need to help to reverse these tendencies of escalating greed, hate, and delusion. So I'd like to begin by um, reading an excerpt uh, from a wonderful speech given by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, in 1967. You've probably, uh, will be familiar with this, but Dr. King says, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood and sisterhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about that, one can never advocate violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And I say to you, I have decided to stick with love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to humankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. And I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. 
And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. One who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. You may have the gift of scientific prediction and understand the behavior of molecules, but if you have not love, this means absolutely nothing. So without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. And when I hear Dr. King say that darkness cannot put out darkness and only light can do that, I'm reminded of uh, the Buddha's teaching in the Dhammapada, which many of you have heard many times. The Buddha says, hatred never ends through hatred, but by non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. So um, what I'm advocating is that um, if we want to reverse this current escalation of greed, hate, and delusion all around us, we have to start incarnating the opposites, incarnating generosity instead of greed, incarnating love and compassion and kindness instead of hatred, and incarnating wisdom instead of delusion. So, take uh, a moment to bring to mind your least favorite politician. (laughs) Um, When I bring to mind my least favorite politician, I get triggered, you know? I mean, I don't like to admit it, but uh, stuff comes up. I see that that person is greed on steroids, hatred on steroids, delusion on steroids. And so what's my response? Uh, Sometimes it's outrage or anger or fear, anxiety, insecurity. Moral indignation, contempt, disgust. And then I say, Meg, where's my wisdom? Where's my compassion? So there are lots of things that uh, my least favorite politician is not good at. But one gift where he really shines is knowing how to push our emotional buttons. And he does it intentionally. Um, There's a Buddhist scholar whom I admire. His name is Robert Wright. uh, And um, he argues in a paper last October that this outrage and disdain waste our mental energy, but they also feed into the narrative that sustains the process of hate. And he argues that this politician keeps encouraging outrage because it actually helps him. So uh, how how does our being outraged help uh, this uh, politician that's um, 
on steroids with greed, hate, and delusion? Well, first of all, it feeds the narrative that energizes his base. And then it translates um, our outrage into antagonism towards his supporters. We had a vivid example of this in the basket of deplorables. Um, And this makes it much more difficult for us to relate to them. And then third, it's a distraction for us. It it takes us away from the hard work of uh, understanding and addressing these dark political forces um, because we're lost in our in our outrage, and then it it paints us in a light that we don't want to be painted in. We're striving for a political system that's based on wisdom and love and generosity, and our outrage gets translated into uh, we as uh, the liberal elitist enemy. So in that position, we're not going to be in a very good place to effectuate change or to help do so. So now take a moment and bring to mind your least uh, favorite social group. For me, I think it's the alt-right. You know? And we may be sickened by the hatred that they foster and the gratuitous violence that comes out of that. Um, Their narcissistic greed should be an invitation to look at our own selfishness and to become more generous. The truth is we can find aspects in uh, these politicians and in these social groups Um, in ourselves of what they're uh, promoting. So if we're sickened by their hatred, what about our own aversion? If uh, we're observing what we see as narcissistic greed, um, what about our own selfishness? And We may also be appalled by their delusion regarding the reality of climate change, for example, and the urgency of addressing it. But what about our delusions? What what are my blind spots? So, um, the people who we perceive as our greatest enemies can be um, actually our greatest teachers because they show aspects of ourselves that we need to deal with in order to heal, aspects that we find unpalatable. And if we can open to the teaching of our enemies, this can be a gift uh, that can help us heal these dark places. Um, Joan Halifax um, stresses that we have to reach through differences listen deeply, and give no fear. So reach through differences, listen really deeply, 
and don't give fear to anyone. So how do we do this? How, how do we respond skillfully to these harmful tendencies all around us? Um, a big part of uh, Buddhist practice is um, not getting uh, involved and caught in our reactive tendencies. So uh, we hear that the government has given huge tax breaks to the ultra-wealthy, and oh, now they're cutting uh, health care for poor children. Uh, the heart breaks. And so how do we get not get caught in our reactive tendencies? How, in the face of the injustice of more money to the very rich and cutting health care and food stamps and this social safety net in general to the most vulnerable among us, we're in the face of injustice. And how do we not bite the hook of being outraged? For me, sometimes it's, it's like a, a nauseous feeling in my stomach of anxiety um, that the most vulnerable people in our society are, are getting shafted. Well, uh, but one thing we do have is the Buddha's teaching of the first noble truth, dukkha, that there is unsatisfactoriness and suffering. Thinisaro Bhikkhu translates dukkha as stress. So, you know, we, we read the news and we feel the stress, the unsatisfactoriness and the suffering. And it's so easy to get upset by the fact that there's so much dukkha all around us. Uh, I'll come back to Pema Chodra again. She talks about the Tibetan notion of shenpa, which she defines as biting the hook of our habitual reactions. And she uses the image of scratching an itch. So she talks about how living in a world where stress and, and impermanence are inescapable, it's really easy to experience insecurity. And we want out of this insecurity. This general feeling of unease. We want some kind of relief from the unease. So we, turn, we may turn to what we enjoy. Food or alcohol or drugs or sex or internet or um, shopping or work. So the, we're, we're, we're in the delusion of thinking that these uh, reactive ways of numbing the, the pain of being ill at ease is actually going to bring us comfort. And that's, that's when we get hooked. So uh, Pema describes how to get unhooked from these unskillful mind states as the four R's. So the first is recognizing the hook. You've got, you've got to see it. And then when you see it, uh, you need to refrain. So you refrain from scratching that itch. 
And then the third, maybe the most important, is relaxing. Relaxing into the underlying urge to scratch. And then resolving to continue interrupting our tendency to uh, try to numb out uh, this feeling of unease. And with all the unease all around us, there's so many opportunities um, to get hooked. So uh, a lot of vigilance is required on our part. And it's a practice that we put in place throughout our lives. So um, you're in a good place uh, here because I think the, the most powerful tool that we have uh, in letting go of our unskillful reactivity is meditation. Because in meditation it all comes up. Um, we, we get to see it all. But the fact of sticking with it, having a daily practice, and, and staying with that urge to scratch or that urge to move or that urge to fantasize and coming back to the breath and coming back to being here, um, we are training the mind to not be so reactive. We're finding the strength from practicing again and again and again to be able to stay with that discomfort that urge without feeling that we have to give into it. Um, another um, thing that's useful uh, is something that Gill emphasizes often, which is mental noting. So, you know, we see, oh, this is anger arising. Um, and so with the four R's, we begin with recognition and then refraining from expressing uh, angry thoughts or angry words or angry actions. It's okay, this is anger. This is the human condition of anger. And then relaxing into that fact. Here we are, we're with it. Um, and we can resolve that You know, as anger comes up again, I'm going to take the skillful path of not giving in to uh, angry thoughts or angry words or angry deeds. Um, Another angle of how to deal with this unease um, is by looking at how we might nourish ourselves skillfully. so many of you know the Tibetan Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, and he was actually the, uh, the originator of uh, socially engaged Buddhism. Um, as he was practicing for decades, he was actively involved in trying to bring an end to the war in Vietnam. And here's what he says, drawing on his own experience in seeking an end to the war. He says, nonviolent action arises from the compassion, lucidity, and understanding that you have within. And he goes on to say that um, activists need to look after themselves if they're going to be effective. So for those of us who wish to engage uh, in um, current events and social healing, and political processes, um, 
He says, if we don't maintain a balance between our work and the nourishment we need, we won't be very successful. The practice of walking meditation, mindful breathing, allowing our body and mind to rest, and getting in touch with the refreshing and healing elements inside and around us is crucial for our survival. So we have to, we have to make sure that we bring into our lives um, things that nourish us, like going for a walk in nature and um, finding some modicum of ease or peace in meditation. And then I'll read to you um, the advice of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's monks, Pap Duong, um, who says that in the face of discrimination or aggression, it can be helpful to take the time to get centered first before uh, the reactivity uh, comes up, before we react. He says, non-action sometimes is very powerful. Sometimes we underestimate someone sitting very calm, very solid, not reacting, and that they can touch a place of peace, a place of love, a place of non-discrimination. This is not inaction. So I think it's important for us uh, who want to engage um, to remember that we're not struggling to overcome people, we're struggling to overcome processes. We're struggling to overcome greed, hate, and delusion. And as practitioners, this is something we're going to be doing our whole lives until we're fully enlightened. Looking at those processes of greed, hate, and delusion within ourselves and within our society. Another thing I found helpful is that is remembering that we don't get to control the outcome. You know, you know when you're sitting, you have this idea of what your meditation is going to be like, and you're going to try really hard, and and then it doesn't go that way at all. You know, so what's happening is that there are all these causes and conditions, and sometimes things go the way we like, and sometimes they don't go the way we like, and and we don't get to decide. Uh, how those causes and conditions um, work themselves out. But what we can do is to put in place conditions that are conducive to the letting go that we need to do, that are conducive to love uh, and to peace. My first uh, teacher, um, Shunyu Suzuki Roshi, once described Buddhist practice as making our best effort on the moment forever. And so our job is to just show up, you know, to do our best um, in meditation, in daily life, in social engagement. Um, So one area that, in, in my trying to work with, with this, that I've uh, found uh, as an opportunity for responding mindfully is to um, 
know how uh, engaging in social media amplifies our response. So if we see something uh, that we find, uh, you know, disdainful or contemptuous or mocking of our least favorite politician or group, and we retweet it or we share it on Facebook, um, we end up alienating the very people that we need to reach. Um, So what I've uh, decided that every time I don't reactively click on share or retweet, I'm engaging in a small act of mindful resistance. You see the urge come up, you think, oh, this is really a great meme, and then you, you, don't, you don't pass it on. Because you know that it's only going to aggravate the division uh, in our society, just the way um, our enemies are trying to, to do. So we have to be really aware, beware of our own indignation so, um, you know, one thing that I think is, is important is to beware of uh, fuming on social media because it's not only um, feeds that narrative of aversion, but it's also plainly a, a waste of our time. We could be doing something much more useful than fuming by pointing out actions that have had good effects or could have good effects, you know. I called my representative this morning because of such and such, and this is what I said. Um, So uh, there's positive things we can do with social media, uh, but we have to be very careful about um, being reactive and and, uh, publishing things that are not going to be helpful in the long run. So what we need to do as mindful um, protesters is to be able to cultivate um, a careful appraisal of what might lead to positive social change. And it's probably not so obvious. You know, it's, uh, as, as Joan Halifax was saying, you know, reaching into differences, not shutting them out, and listening carefully to what everybody's saying. Um... So, you know, peace beginning in here. Um, But in our meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, uh, we get the chance to see how our minds deviate from peace. And we get the, the opportunity to practice, okay, you know, what do I do with this discomfort and this disease? And learning little by little, again and again, by coming back, um, Gill often talks about having a reference point. Um, he used the image of putting a, a uh, there's a, a shallow mountain stream that if you're just looking at it, you don't even realize that it's flowing. But if you put a stick in it, you see the water uh, currents going around the stick. Uh, and you, oh, that water's not still, it's flowing. And so... Uh, for us as meditators, having having a kind of a reference point like that, um, often it's staying with the breath. Um, 
and being committed to that. And so uh, when we notice the mind's wandered off, well, we just, we just come back. But this reference point um, and the simplicity of that gives us a way of uh, staying with what's uncomfortable long enough to find some ease there and relaxing into it. Um, another thing that uh, I found helpful uh, as a skill in cultivating a wise response to our current situation is in the Buddhist virtue of equanimity, upekka in Pali, which etymologically uh, means having a, a bird's eye view. Um, so we're invited to see our political situation in a, in a wider context. Um, imagine the Dalai Lama. He's lost his whole country. He's lost his temples, his culture, his people are displaced. And he says that his religion is kindness. And he practices kindness towards the Chinese. And not only that, he retains a sense of humor. You know, our situation is, is nothing compared to what the Dalai Lama has been through in terms of having your whole, your whole people uh, torn away from their lands and their homes. So we need loving kindness and we also need wisdom. We meet the enemy and it's in us. We meet the friend, and it's in us. And so this points to the truth of not-self. And that's another way of not getting hooked. Um, I find it very helpful uh, when something like the anxiety arises. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. I don't have to identify with this. I don't have to believe in it. And with that idea of this is not me, there's a, there's a space kind of opens up to let go of it and relax into it and let it dissolve by itself. So, um, you know, we don't want to gloss over the fact that the um, forces of greed, hate, and delusion are escalating. We have to look it in the eye. But we also have to find the balance of not uh, getting so discouraged. And we have to find our own way of what is my way of responding wisely, of responding with kindness. So I'll uh, close by um, reading a, a passage from the uh, Karyana Metta Sutta, which many of you know well, and then uh, some metta phrases that we might actually say for our least favorites out there. So the Buddha exhorts us as follows, Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, 
her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. It's a tall order the Buddha is giving us, loving kindness for all beings without exception. So how might we offer those who perpetuate racism and gender violence and environmental economic injustice, how might we offer them our loving kindness? And um, uh, I'll share with you some phrases that I uh, learned from Lee Brasington And he suggests that um, if you think of your least favorite politician, um, you could wish that he be free from troubles of mind and body. Because if he's not so troubled in his mind and his body, he'll be more apt to turn in a skillful or wholesome direction. You can, you know, that he wants to be happy, just like everyone wants to be happy. And you can wish him that he can find happiness by ethical means. So you you want the guy to be happy because if he's happy, he's not going to be doing so much evil. And then uh, you can wish that he be free from enmity and hurtfulness. Now that his mind and body are less troubled, now that he's less... Uh, He's finding his happiness by means that are ethical and not based on greed. Um, You can say from your heart, may you be free from enmity. May you be free from hurtfulness. So, to my least favorite, may you be free of troubles of mind and body May you find ethical means of happiness. May you be free from enmity. May you be free from hurtfulness. So I think I've uh, probably raised more questions than answers in um, trying to talk about the heartbreak I feel in response to these troubling times. But we have a a few minutes left if you'd like to share some of your thoughts on this. We have the mic. I'd like to uh, get your your, uh, reflections on what's going on in Burma. Yeah, that's one of the worst. Um, it shows us that even Buddhists are subject to uh, incredibly violent and and deluded ideas about self and other or we and them Um, and I know that there are a number of engaged Buddhists who are, are working very hard with the situation in Burma um, that's that's another huge heartbreak that hits really close to home for us. Yeah. 
you know, my thoughts of Burma is, you know, how, how, to, how to get this to stop. And many people are uh, disappointed with Aung San, um, but the military is in charge, and maybe she realizes the limits of what she can do politically. I don't know. Um, but it's a very sad situation that, that desperately needs to change. Thank you for your talk. I have a question. What exactly does it mean when they say that the folks that you dislike the most, where you should not be so reactive, what does it mean to you when you say that they can be your best teachers? What comes to your mind? Oh, um, pointing out to me um, how I... I, I have remnants of what I'm disparaging in them or what I'm aversive to in them. And it's, it's like, it's, it's a mirror. So the, the easy reaction is to be offended and to be disgusted and to, you know, be reactive. And then you think, well, wait a minute. Am I, am I free of delusion? Really? Am I really free of greed and aversion? I like the word mirror, thanks. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like I said in the beginning, um, we do need discernment. We do need to have a, have a good idea of what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. And, you know, um, and that's getting harder and harder, you know, because there's so, here we are in a post-truth society. What the heck is that? You know, that's really scary. How, how are young people going to develop discernment in this, in this, with the kind of media we have? We might have one more question. Uh, thank you for your courage in giving this talk. I know that this might have hit different people in our sangha differently. Um, it's a hard thing to talk about. I just yeah. appreciate you, you addressing this. Um, I was struck by your your comment about we're not I'm paraphrasing here but the the problem isn't people but it's processes yeah um, and that 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 really lit up for me I imagine if I grew up in a different part of the country very ri- different than this I might be a supporter of my least favorite politician right now if I grew up in Soviet Russia 70 years ago, I'd probably be a communist. Mm. Um, I'm not totally self-made, you know? That's I'm, right. It's causes and conditions. There are causes and conditions. I just find that very helpful. So I, I just appreciate that. I had a question for you. Um, I find a lot of solace in comedy on yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, and I realize a lot of it is directed against my least favorite politician, but I wonder uh, what your view is of that. Well, I think comedy can be quite healing, um, uh, certainly for for us. You know, um, what does it do to the the supporters of the least favorite? I don't know. I don't know how 
how skillful it is. But I, I think it's, uh, comedy at least uh, is more skillful than arrogance and disdain. You know, of thinking that, you know, we've got it, we're the right ones and we're the elite and we know the way things are and you guys are just deplorables. Thank you. Thank you very much for your attention.